Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that the Victory Kitchen podcast has an Instagram account. You can get sneak peeks and see the progress of my research for all the episodes by following at Victory Kitchen Podcast. Hi, welcome to episode number four. There's dynamite in that grease. And that's right, today we're talking about fat rationing. Back in 2014, over on my history blog, historypreserved.com, I had dedicated the entire year to learning about wartime rationing. So at the height of this project, I experimented with this wartime British bulletin teaching how to render and reuse fat. So I saved bacon fat and beef fat from my own cooking. Then using the instructions in the bulletin, I rendered it, cleaned it with a raw potato, because that's what they said to remove any smoky flavor like from the bacon. And I reused it to make apple fritters and fish fritters. And much to my surprise, it was a huge success. This was a skill that I had never tried before. But as I found out, it's a skill that many women use to save their fats. So in modern culture today, I mean, most people haven't heard of rendering fat and reusing it. In our modern food culture, fat has been on a bit of a roller coaster For a long time, fat was valued for its calories and its taste, but then it became unpopular for diets and because of, you know, a lot of weight gain, like the obesity epidemic. But in recent years, there's been a wave of, I guess I could say traditionalists reemphasizing the important role fat has in our health. So this brings us to how was fat important during World War II? Well, I think it can be argued that fat was the most important thing that we can talk about in wartime rationing because of all of its uses and then how much consumers valued it. Starting on March 29, 1943, with the new Ration Book 2, meats, cheeses, processed foods, and then all the fats were rationed at this point. So the fats that were rationed were butter, margarine, oil, lard, and shortening. And what's interesting is that the dates for when these different fats were removed from rationing are all very different. So lard was removed from rationing March 3rd of 1944. Shortening and oils were April 19th, 1944. And then butter and margarine weren't removed from rationing until November 23rd, 1945. Fats played a very important role in World War II. Fats added nutrition and much-needed calories. It made food taste better, made you feel satisfied, and made you feel full longer. And I think those things we don't normally think about in relation to fat, but that is an important value, um, especially to consider when it comes to wartime rationing. Fats were prized in baking, of course, but just like we've learned with sugar, where sugar was used more than just for consumption, Fats were used in other wartime applications. An article in the Iowa City Press dated November 18, 1944, stated that due to the fats and oil shortages worldwide, 
The U.S. government's priority was the armed forces first, U.S. civilians second, and the needs of our allies third. So that was the ranking for who got the fat first. Now, really quick, I wanted to highlight this really interesting newspaper article I found. The Sidwell Dairy Company in Iowa ran this um, almost a year-long series. Once a week, they put a little article in the newspaper answering questions about dairy and dairy fat rationing questions that people had. One of these was entitled, Why is your supply of butter exhausted so frequently? So at the head of the article, in all caps, it says, Heavy purchases of butter by the government the past three months have cut deeply into otherwise adequate supplies and caused the shortage. During July 1944, the War Food Administration required every creamery to set aside 45% of the butter they churned during the month for purchase by the government for military and lend-lease uses. And this wasn't the first time it done it either. In conclusion of the article, they state... Locally, we think the situation is at its worst right now. The increase in points from 12 to 16 points and the decrease in the amount the government will require to be set aside in August will undoubtedly contribute to the creating of a surplus. Another two weeks should improve the situation somewhat. This is a really great example of how the rationing system, together with the food supply and demand, fluctuated constantly during the war, which contributes to how confusing it is to pin down when we try and study rationing now. Besides feeding the soldiers, here is a short list of many other wartime applications for fats. Lard was used to grease guns. Glycerin was used for explosives. Fats could be used to make synthetic rubber. Pharmaceuticals, like medicines. Fabrics. Military and civilian soaps. Lubricating fluids. Paints. And then thousands of other civilian and military products. I think the one that surprised me the most because I hadn't thought of it, was the soaps. If fat is rationed, how easy is it going to be to get soap, which is such a basic necessity? I know as a housewife, that would be something I'd be worried about. It's making sure I've got soap to clean stuff. So in the household, fats were used and reused by rendering it and cleaning it so that they could get the most use out of the fat before it was no longer edible. And this was a skill that many housewives had learned during the Great Depression. It was a really important thing to know how to do so that you could get the most out of the food that you had. Now, earlier I talked about during my project, I learned about how to clean fat. And this is done in a very simple way. You just collect all your fat scraps and then you put it in a pot with some water and then you heat it up. I bring it to like a simmer a little bit, and then you strain the fat through a cloth. Then you put it somewhere cool so that the fat can solidify, and then it's removed from the water, and you have clean fat. To understand, you know, where was all the fat during this time? Why was there a global shortage of fat? It's important to understand where the fats were coming from. So a lot of fat comes from animals, and then it also comes from plants. And a lot of the oils and things, even copra, which was uh, the coconut meat that they would extract oils from, these sources were affected by the war, as well as the ability to ship these fats around the world was hampered by the war. So countries kind of had to fend for themselves a little bit to get their fat needs fulfilled. And so 
the United States, they had a lot of pigs and cows that they were able to get fat from. But a lot of the oils and other things, there just wasn't as much to go around. And all of those things that I listed that fats were used for, everyone around the world used them in the same way. So when all of a sudden the supply has been cut dramatically, all of these things that fat are used for are put at risk. Now, did every American housewife save their waste fats? I don't know, but apparently, according to the government, they didn't. A lot of fat went to waste and there was a huge campaign to encourage housewives to save your waste fats. And when they say waste fats, they really mean the inedible stuff. So they're not saying, you know, fry your chicken this one time and then donate the rest of the the fats to the war effort. Like it wasn't like that. They just wanted the fats that could no longer be used for consumption because that was very important that people were getting their fats in their diets. It was after that they were interested in the fat that couldn't be used anymore because that still had many uses. So today I have a super exciting resource that I found. And I have been holding on to this, not being able to tell anybody, but now I can finally share it. Hooray. All right. So in an online archive, I found a public domain video that was animated by Disney, created by the Conservation Division of the War Production Board and distributed by the War Activities Committee Motion Pictures Industry. This was a propaganda film explaining to housewives why they needed to save their waste fats and to do their part for victory. This little cartoon stars Minnie Mouse and Pluto the dog. So at the beginning, you're going to hear Minnie singing and some little scruffy sounds. That would be Pluto. So without further ado, here is the audio clip. throw away that bacon grease. Housewives of America, one of the most important things you can do is to save your waste kitchen fats. Bacon grease, meat drippings, frying fats. We and our allies need millions of pounds of fats to help win the war. For fats make glycerin, and glycerin makes explosives. Every year, two billion pounds of waste kitchen fats are thrown away. Enough glycerin for 10 billion rapid-fire cannon shells. A belt 150,000 miles long, six times around the Earth. A skillet of bacon grease is a little munitions factory. Meat drippings sink Axis warships. Frying fats speed depth charges on their way to crush Axis submarines. 
your pound of waste fat will give some boy at the front an extra clip of cartridges. Do you still want the bacon grease, Pour your waste kitchen fats in a clean, wide-mouth can. That's right, not a glass jar or paper bag. Please strain the fats through a kitchen sieve. Keep in a cool, dark place so it won't become rancid. When you have a pound or more, take it to your neighborhood meat dealer, who is patriotically cooperating. He will weigh the fat and pay you for it. <laughs> so you want weenies instead of money. Okay, catch them. waste fats to make explosives. Look for the official insignia in your meat dealer's window. Is that awesome or what? All right. Well, if you want to see Mickey Mouse in a World War II uniform, you have to watch this little film. I'm going to put it on my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. So you can watch the whole thing. It's really worth seeing the visuals as well. But I was so excited that I could put this audio clip in my podcast today for your enjoyment. Not only that, though, this film touches on a lot of important things about the fat salvage program, which I'll talk about in just a minute. The one thing I wanted to point out is that at the end of the clip, he talks about how there are the butchers that have a special insignia in their window. And it was a special little plaque or um, sticker or something that showed that they were a fat collection place. So housewives, if they saw that little placard, they knew that they could take their waste fats to that place and be paid money. And uh, later on in the program, they were, able, they were given red ration points, extra ones that they could use for buying meats and fats and things like that. Okay, now we're going to talk about the American Fat Salvage Program. This program was initiated in July of 1942 under the direction of the Salvage Division of the War Production Board. This program lasted until January of 1948. That is a lot longer than I originally thought. After VE Day, so Victory Over Europe, I found a bunch of newspaper articles urging homemakers not to be lured into a false sense of security but that they needed to continue saving fats, continue with the rationing mentality because they still had victory to gain over Japan and the availability of fats was still low. And as we can see, the program didn't end until 1948. So even after the war, it took a long time for the world's fat resources and supplies to come back up to pre-war levels. So during the entire five and a half years of this program, American women saved and turned in 670 million pounds of fat. And during the same period, the armed services recovered more than 186 million pounds. That's amazing. During consumer rationing, the OPA created provision for granting housewives red point bonuses. So that, like I said before, the extra meat, dairy, and fat points, in addition to the purchase price for salvaged fat. And so the purchase price was per pound. So it was four cents and two red points for every pound turned in. So I'm going to explain how this worked because it's one of those things you don't really hear about very much when you talk about wartime rationing, like the logistics. I always want to know how exactly did it work? 
all of this information that I'm reading from comes from a report, a government report that was written and published in 1948, explaining how the American Fat Salvage Program came about and why it was needed and um, how exactly it functioned. And it's important to point out that the American Fat Salvage Board was not actually a government agency of any kind. It was it was run by private industry, but they did work hand in hand with the government. All right. So how this program worked was the homemaker saves frying pan grease, meat drippings, soup skimmings, pan scrapings, and fat rendered from meat and table scraps in clean tin cans. And these were usually fruit and vegetable cans. Fats that were suitable for cooking could be reused in the home until no longer fit for such purposes and then turned in as salvage fat. A newspaper article from the Sandusky Register dated September 11, 1945, entitled, Despite Victory, Use Fat Saving Must Go On, says, Don't turn in fats that can be reused! Exclamation <laughs> mark! But some fats, such as those rendered from lamb and mutton, are not suitable for reuse. Put them immediately into the salvage can. And with other fats, after you've got all cooking good out of them, there is always a little left. No matter how little it is, save it. So after they've saved the fat... Homemakers turn the used fat into the neighborhood retail meat dealer, who pays for the going price per pound as determined by the current market situation. Practically all meat dealers, as well as operators of most frozen locker plants, received used fats. Then the next step was the renderers collected the used fat from local meat dealers and paid them for it. Renderers usually provided this pickup service once or twice a week. They also collected butcher shop fats from retail meat dealers and used fats from restaurants and other institutional producers. They also picked up and paid for waste slaughter fats at killing time. Then the renderers refined the used fats they collect and prepare them for sale to industrial users. The industrial user buys the used fats offered by renderers in the open market through regular channels of trade. The used fat thus goes into the overall commercial supply of inedible fats and is available to any industrial operator. As a result, salvage collections add effectively to the overall supply and indirectly improve the supply of edible fats. So that's really cool to know. The salvage collection of the fats indirectly improved the fat situation. That same article from the Sandusky Register closes with these rousing words. Save consistently. Save every drop you can every day until Uncle Sam says the job is done. I found this really interesting statistic about the fat that was sold to the munitions factories so that they could extract the glycerin for explosives. It said that one pound of waste fat equaled a tenth of a pound of glycerin. A tenth of a pound of glycerin equaled a fifth of a pound of nitroglycerin. A fifth of a pound of nitroglycerin equaled a third pound of gunpowder and the same amount, fifth a pound of nitroglycerin, also equaled half a pound of dynamite. I really like this because, I mean, I've heard about the munitions factories using glycerin from the fats to make explosives, but it's good to know, like, exactly how much of these waste fats went into making these explosives and how much they produced. All right, next we're going to be talking about margarine and butter extenders. What is oleomargarine? That's a term that you see when you read uh, wartime cookbooks and even read newspaper articles. Sometimes they just call it oleo. Oleomargarine is just margarine, what we call today. But instead, it was just a white color, like lard or shortening. And it came with yellow dye tablets. And you would take these yellow tablets and knead it into 
the margarine to make it yellow like butter. I've talked to several people who remember that as a child, this was their job, was to knead the yellow tablets into the margarine to make it yellow. I'm not going to go into why they had to do that in this episode. In a further episode, I am going to be talking about the battle between butter versus margarine uh, because it's just a topic unto itself. <laughs> um, but let's just say it involved some laws and lobbying of Congress. So one very well advertised way that housewives could stretch their butter ration was with a butter extender recipe. The butter extenders um, are really interesting This usually included butter and gelatin. This was done so that you could stretch your butter ration so you'd have twice the amount of butter. Sometimes it was done with evaporated milk. I've seen a few recipes like that, but the biggest one is usually gelatin. I have tried a butter extender recipe using gelatin, and when I was reading the recipe, And the claim saying, you can double your butter ration. I was like, there's no way that this will double my butter. It just, I think it was just a half stick of butter. So like half cup of butter with the gelatin. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to soften the butter in a double boiler, I guess, not melt it. That's very important. Then you also soften the gelatin in some warm water. And then you whisk them together. This is supposed to double the butter. So I started out with half cup and by the end I had a cup of butter. So it actually worked. (laughs) That happens to me every time I underestimate a wartime recipe. It always proves me wrong. So it doubled my butter and it makes it a very soft butter to spread, which is really nice. You can bake with it. Um, I don't know if it was recommended that you fry with it or anything like that, like eggs or something. So I spread it on some bread and it tastes just like butter, of course, but there's definitely a different texture, you know, that's going on in there. So, I mean, you could get used to it. It didn't taste terrible. And if you really want to double your butter ration, this was a great way to do it. I will definitely have a butter extender recipe or two on my blog for you to try yourself because... Butter is kind of expensive, and you never know when a recipe like that might come in handy. Today's featured cookbook is the Westinghouse Health for Victory Club Meal Planning Guide. That's always such a mouthful to say, (laughs) but this was a series of little magazine pamphlets that were published by the Westinghouse Company for their employees and their wives. They published these from 1942 until 1944. And if you're going to buy a wartime ration cookbook to try out, I would definitely recommend that this be the first one you get. There's so many issues out there because they publish one per month and they're reasonably priced. And they're just chock full of amazing information and recipes and menu plans. Just, I can't speak highly enough of these. They are just fantastic resource. These cookbooks are so great. I'll probably be featuring another one in a future episode. This particular issue I'm featuring this episode is from September 1943. This cover is one of my favorites of theirs because it shows a woman in a munitions factory inspecting ammunition shells. It's just a really cool image. So 
I thought I would feature two bread recipes because if you're going to have butter, you got to have some bread to put it on, right? <laughs> so the first one I'm going to talk about is the recipe for oatmeal refrigerator rolls. They have an alternative variation using bran. So I made the bran refrigerator rolls because I have a whole bunch of cereal bran flakes uh, that I save all the dredges from the bottom of the bag nobody wants to eat. I save those because they're really great for using in recipes like muffins or in this case rolls. I have to say this is the first time ever I've ever made refrigerator rolls and I'm not that good at it. <laughs> I'm okay with making uh, loaves of bread, but for some reason, these rolls just, they tasted fine, but maybe I was wrong in the technique. I don't know. It's an essential roll recipe. You mix up the dough, put it in a greased bowl, cover it, it says cover with wax paper, and then place it in the refrigerator. And then when needed, you pull it out, form them into clover leaf rolls and muffin pans, cover and let rise in a warm place until almost double, then you bake it. Pretty straightforward, right? Well, um, it wasn't though for me. I know that usually the breads that are risen in the refrigerator usually have a higher water content. So they're able to like stretch and really rise well and um, get that gluten elasticity going. But I guess this particular recipe, it didn't have high enough water content. So it just didn't rise very much in the refrigerator. And then it didn't have hardly any gluten consistency at all it was more like a biscuit almost even like rising I had to rise them for a really long time in the muffin pans and then I just finally baked it because I gave up <laughs> and yeah but I mean they tasted really good I think they are lovely warmed up with some butter spread on there and super delicious so maybe I need to experiment with maybe a different wartime refrigerator roll but I still challenge you to make this one because I think it's a really cool idea to use bran flakes in a refrigerator roll. And that gives it, I mean, you can't even tell that they're bran flakes. They're just, it just looks like you've got wheat bran in there. So that's pretty cool. The second recipe I want to talk about is a pretty cool recipe. It's for Plymouth bread. And I featured this on my Instagram account. It's a very different technique. You take cornmeal, a half cup cornmeal, you boil it in two cups of water to cook it, and then you add shortening and molasses. And then when that's cooled down, you mix in the yeast and the water and flour and salt. And that makes your bread dough. It makes This recipe makes two loaves of bread. And when it's baked, it just gives off this wonderful molasses smell. And it even tastes, you know, you can really taste the molasses in there because it calls for half a cup of molasses. That's a lot. <laughs> But the great thing about this, the finished bread has a little bit denser, uh, chewier texture to it, but it makes it awesome for slicing and toasting. So I use a vintage toaster and those slots are a lot more narrow than modern toasters that accommodate bagels. <laughs> so um, having a bread that I can slice and slip in there for toast is awesome. So I will have both of these recipes on my blog, including pictures at VictoryKitchenPodcast.com. Today's featured story comes from Marie Labazu. It's about her granny, Helen Roll Biggins. She was a mother of eight, 
a grandmother of many more. And Marie says, This recipe was handed down to me by my mother, born in 1943. She remembers Granny made her make this recipe over and over until she got it right before she was allowed to bake other things. The original recipe may have contained lard, but she cannot document that. So this recipe is for eggless chocolate cake. It calls for one cup white sugar, a quarter cup unsweetened cocoa, one teaspoon baking soda, four tablespoons shortening melted, one and a half cups flour, one cup sour milk, one teaspoon vanilla, and a pinch of salt. Mix together the dry ingredients, add milk, vanilla, and melted shortening. Pour into a greased and floured pan, bake at 350 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 to 30 minutes. Mmm, chocolate cake. <laughs> Thank you so much for submitting this story and recipe, Marie. And if you are interested in sharing your family story of rationing with me for the podcast, I would love that. You can go to my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com, where there is a form that you can fill out. That's it for today's episode. But one last thing is I wanted to tell you that a little thing about me is that I have a history degree and I homeschool my kids. This podcast is my way of showing them that with determination, research, and hard work, they can accomplish just about anything. I also wanted to show the world that there's more than one way that you can use a history degree. If you like this podcast and would like to support future episodes, you can go to www.anchor.fm slash Sarah Creviston Lee and click on the support button. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.